Glad you're with us today. I want to call your attention to the bulletin. We always try to put all the pertinent information you need to know. On the front of the bulletin is um, a little, uh, to get your attention about next Sunday night, we're going to have Connect at the Park. One of the good things about this time of year, we've got some uh, other options with the good weather, and so we'll be sharing more detail about that. And then also you'll notice in the bulletin the small group Bible study insert. Tonight is our last small group Bible study of this um, season, this term. We're going to wrap that up tonight. Uh, and so I want you to be a part of that if you're in a group, and you can join one even tonight if you would like. Uh, to that end, we're going to have a special announcement at the end of worship today by one of our shepherds sharing um, some of the exciting plans for the summer, both for our Wednesday nights for the adults and also for the Sunday nights. And so be listening for that in just a, a few minutes when we wrap up today. I put on the uh, screen, and it's at the top of your uh, outline for the sermon, how do you respond when God says no? How do you respond when God says no? When your prayers are not answered and your dreams are not realized, how do you take that no answer from God? Do you accept it peacefully, faithfully? Or do you shake your fist at God and make your life miserable and all those around you? How you handle denial says a lot about your spiritual maturity. Psalm 37 verse 4 says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Jesus said, Matthew 7, 7, Ask and it will be given to you. Now, there's some churches, some preachers who only focus on verses like these two, and they fail to point out the verses that explain about ask according to God's will, or fail to explain what it means to delight in the Lord. And this leaves the impression on those who are spiritually immature that if you obey, if you believe, if you've got enough faith, then you will get what you want. But what if you don't? How do you respond when God says no? Because God doesn't always answer with a yes. Someone said God answers prayer four ways. Yes, no, wait, and you've got to be kidding me. <laughs> what if you don't get the job? What if the house doesn't sell? What if you don't get married? What if you never get pregnant? What if your child doesn't recover? What if you don't have enough money to retire? What if? How do you react to God's no says a lot about you, about your character, and that will factor greatly into your spirit of contentment. There's a class I'm a part of. We just completed a study in Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, and now we've just finished Joshua. And through that study, we've been noticing how God was working, especially through Moses. Everybody, you don't know much about the Bible, you've heard about Moses. This morning, I want us to look at and begin with a time when God said no to Moses. Because we tried to wrestle with this. Why did God do this? And of all people, to Moses. In Numbers chapter 20, the Israelites were in the desert of Zen. There was no water. It was a time of desperation, and so they cry out, really they lash out to Moses. We're thirsty, we're dying over here, we wish we were back in Egypt. What kind of leader are you? They were so difficult to deal with. 
Look on the screen, Numbers chapter 20. You can follow along in your Bible. I'm going to give it in verse, beginning in verse 6. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meeting and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron, your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. Tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out from the rock for them and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Verse 9, And Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he commanded him, and Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice, and the water came out abundantly, and the congregation drank and their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me, to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel. Therefore, you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. So Moses is not allowed to enter the promised land because he blew it this one time. And we might even say a minor offense. On the surface, it seems like such a severe punishment for something so small. Besides, earlier when water was needed, some of you might remember this, God told him to strike the rock. So why was the punishment so severe? If he did it wrong, why did the water come anyway? Why didn't God let that be the punishment? Like, you didn't obey me, so I'm not going to make it happen. That's not how God worked here. Why was the punishment so severe for Moses? After all, think about what's going on here. For 40 years, Moses had sacrificially given of himself to lead these people out of bondage. And if you remember, he didn't want the assignment to begin with. Pick someone, somebody else. He even pleaded for God for their lives when they disobeyed God. Who wouldn't be exasperated with these people? I mean, Moses gave and gave and gave and gave. And when things weren't going to their liking... They complained again and again and again. And in some ways, it seems to us that God would let him at least go into the promised land. I mean, that's what they were, were, were wanting. They'd been in bondage for these 400 years. This was the moment of reward. Where is God's grace? Moses was wondering the same thing. Deuteronomy 3, verse 23 through 27. He asked God to reconsider, and I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, Oh, Lord God, please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country in Lebanon. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, Enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. So God said no to Moses, and it was the final answer. There was no changing his mind. He was not going to the promised land. And that seemed so harsh. It seemed like the, the punishment didn't meet the offense. It's out of kilter a bit. But let me share at least four reasons I can come up with as to why I believe the crime did fit, meet the punishment or why it was suitable. Not on the screen, but you may want to take notes if you've ever struggled with this. Like, how do you handle God says no? Well, first for Moses, this was a repeat offense. This was not the first time Moses lost his temper. 
Some commentaries will even talk about how Moses seemed to have an anger control issue. And it never seemed to leave him. Remember, as a young man, he struck that Egyptian and killed him out of a fit of rage. He saw the injustice. When he came down from the Mount of Sinai carrying the two tablets that had the Ten Commandments, and he saw the people in rebellion, in his anger, he threw them down and broke them. This was Moses. And now, instead of speaking to the rock, he lashes out at the rock with his staff. Almost every person has a character flaw, what the Bible sometimes describes as a, as a besetting sin. And Moses seemed to never get beyond this ability to control his anger. Well, another factor in that this was a terrible example to all the people. This wasn't something that Moses did privately or quietly. He did this in front of everyone. The passage said that Moses did this in the sight of the Israelites. Everybody's watching. And more is expected of the leader. And if this obedience goes unpunished, don't you know, everybody's taking note of that. God doesn't mean what he says. You can do what you want, and God's still going to make it happen. So this sent a message. Well, here's the third one. The offense was also big because did you notice from the reading that Moses took credit for it himself? I mean, in his exasperation with the people, he says, Here now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? As if Moses and Aaron were actually the ones making it happen. There's no offense, no small offense to start taking credit for what God was doing. But number four, ultimately, and really this is the only thing that matters, it was a lack of faith. That's really what's going on here. It was unbelief. That was really the problem. Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy, God said to Moses. God's not being picky. He's not trying to find a way to trip up Moses and find a small fault where he kind of messed up a little bit. God knew the striking of the rock was not the problem. That was the symptom of the problem. The problem, according to God was unbelief, unbelief, a lack of faith. On their outline, there's a line of application. It's also going to be on your screen. Where each time God says no, there's something that we can learn from this. Sometimes, not often, but sometimes, God may say no to you and me as a punishment for sin. And we need to realize that. That's what's going on here with Moses. That's a real possibility that the no you're getting from God could be a result of your sin. Look at Hebrews chapter 12, verse 5. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. Have you ever heard a wise parent say, I love you too much to let you act that way? And then they give out a punishment to keep you from acting that way. It's because of that love, there's that suitable discipline. And the Bible tells us that God is a loving Father. And when we continue to rebel, He will eventually find some way to discipline us, to nudge us back to listening to His voice, getting back on track. You may remember the story Norman Vincent Peale tells. When he was a young teenage boy, he once sneaked a cigar out behind the barn. And while he was smoking his cigar, 
he heard his dad inside the shed there hitching up the horses to go to town. So he quickly put out the cigar and, and put it in his pocket, and he came around and he said, Dad, can I go with you into town? And without ever looking up, his dad said, Son, never make a request when you're harboring a smoldering disobedience. Look at Psalm 66, verse 18. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Hear that. If I had cherished sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Sometimes God says no when we're harboring a smoldering disobedience. You know, the Bible is full of examples where when someone disobeys, God immediately, in fact, in a very spectacular way, disciplines them right then. What child has not been in Sunday school and remembers the story of Lot's wife who turns around and looks back and becomes the pillar of salt. Miriam undermines uh, Moses' leadership, and, and she instantly becomes struck with leprosy. In the New Testament, Ananias and Sapphira, they're struck dead because they lied to the Holy Spirit. They had sin and immediate consequences. But that's not the norm. It happens. It happens in Scripture. But I don't think very often God does immediate corporal punishment on us for our sin. I think more often than not, what we've experienced and we see to be true, that God just allows the natural consequences of our sin to play out. And they do. That's what Numbers 32, 23 says. Be sure your sin will find you out. Be sure your sin will find you out. Maybe you've got anger issues. And you continue to struggle with that. You never get it under control. And then you mouth off at the wrong time to the wrong person. And suddenly you're out of a job. Or you cheat your way through school. And somehow you manage to keep doing well and you go forward, but then you get into a job that you're not prepared to do and you fail miserably. Maybe you refuse to quit smoking and then decades later you get lung cancer. It happens. The Bible says a person reaps what he sows. Now, that doesn't mean that God won't forgive you, but it does mean that he allows us to live with, to have to deal with the consequences Look at Hebrews 12, verse 7, and then verse 10 through 13. Verse 7 says, endure hardship as discipline. And then verse 10 says, God disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. Therefore, strengthen your feeble arms and weak knees, make level paths for your feet, so that the lame may not be disabled, but rather healed. Think about that. Don't let God's no or discipline cripple you, but rather be healed by. And a good example of that is King David. And that's the next person I want us to see. God said no to David. You know the story of David. He committed adultery and then murdered to try to cover it up. But when Nathan the prophet finally confronted him, David felt so guilty. He understood finally, and he pleaded with God to forgive him. And Nathan gave him the message, you remember? God will forgive you, but the child will not live. And David was devastated. He fell on his face for a week, refusing to eat, praying for God to save the child 
All of his advisors were so concerned because David would not move from that. He just continued to pray. In fact, when the child died, they were concerned about sharing the news with David, just not sure how he would react. And do you remember how David reacted when he got the news that his son died? He got up. He got cleaned up, dressed up. He went to the temple and worshipped God. Everybody was so puzzled by that. How can you do that? What kind of response is that? And he explained, when the child was alive, I prayed that God would, would be gracious and perhaps in his goodness spare the life of the child. But now that the child is dead, I cannot bring him back. But one day I will go to him. That verse has comforted so many in dealing with grape. One day I will go to him. The story concludes, though, by saying David gave up on God and lived in bitterness the rest of his days. No, it doesn't. You know better. Remember how the story ends? It says, and David comforted Bathsheba. David is a man after God's own heart. Instead of becoming bitter and angry when God said no, he accepted the no with grace and went on. But that wasn't the only time God said no to David. This, this wonderful man, again, after God's own heart, toward the end of his life, David realized, here I am living in a palace, and, and God is, is dwelling in this, this tent. And it, that tent made sense when they were nomadic people traveling to the desert. But, but now, for hundreds of years, they've been there in the promised land, and it was time to build a magnificent temple. And remember what God said to David's request? No. But not just no to the idea, it was no to David. The chapter goes on to explain that Solomon would build it. But again, David didn't gripe. David didn't give up on God. He's not complaining. In fact, he just set his face to, to encourage and do what he could to help Solomon. Look at his response, 1 Chronicles 22, verse 5. David says, Solomon, my son, is young and inexperienced, and the house that is to be built for the Lord must be exceedingly magnificent, of fame and glory throughout all lands. I will therefore make preparation for it. So David provided materials in great quantity before his death. So even though he was not going to be the one to do it, he still made provisions to try to make it easier for Solomon. He had such a, a wonderful spirit, even when God said no to his request. So here's the application. Sometimes God will say no to you because it's not about you. And we all need to know this. If it happened for King David, it happened to us. Sometimes God will say no to you because it's not about you. He has someone else in mind for that role. Maybe they're better qualified. Maybe they need that position or that opportunity. Maybe they need that assignment. Maybe somebody else can cope with that better than you. Folks, you are not God's only child. You are not God's only child. He's got billions of other in the world who want their heart's desire. And we need to understand that. And it's not that God is not able. It's that you're not the only one. Remember when Jesus was teaching his disciples how to pray? He started, Our Father who is in heaven. Remember that? So he's not praying, My Father in heaven. It's, it's collectively. Because we're not the only children. It's an acknowledgement right there. You're not the only one praying. You're praying that you can get that job and somebody else is also praying they can get that job. 
Somebody is going to get a no. You're praying for your son to make that free throw because it would win the game and it would just do so much for him at such a young, impressionable age. But there's a woman on the other side of the gym who's praying that your son won't make that free throw. So her husband, the coach, will get a victory and keep the job and be able to put food on the table. We need to remember that we're not God's only child. Now, I'm not a Calvinist that believes that God causes everything that happens in the world, even tragedies. I don't think so. But I do believe in the sovereignty of God and the omnipotence of God that he permits some things to happen that he could prevent. He is able. And there are times where he will sit on his hands and he says no. But he promises us through his word and the big perspective of things that all things will work together for those who love him. Now that can be a whole other lesson to unpack Romans 8, 28. But I do know the Bible helps us to see again and again that eternity matters most to God. Not the details that we get bogged down here in the here and now. Sometimes God says no because you are not his only child. God said no to Moses being disciplined for his unbelief. God said no to David because he wanted someone else to build the temple. And God said no to Paul, even when it seems like a very reasonable request. Look at 2 Corinthians 12, 7 through 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient to you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. You know this story. Three times Paul prays to remove this thorn in the flesh. We don't know what it was. Some kind of physical limitation, ailment. Nobody really knows what it is. And Paul's requests for it to be removed seems reasonable. Here he's a gifted communicator, fully dedicated, trying to do all that he can for the kingdom. And God can do anything that he wants And if anybody could be used effectively to build up the kingdom, it would be Paul. So why would God put this limitation on Paul? This thorn in the flesh. Three times Paul prayed, and three times God said no. How do you know when God's telling you no? We're going to talk about that in our small group discussions tonight. How do you know? Sometimes... It's obvious. You pray for your daughter not to marry that man, and she does. There's a no. You pray to get the promotion, and you don't. There's the no. Sometimes you just sense it in your spirit somehow. Sometimes God will put wise, mature Christians in your life, and they'll speak to you the same message. You realize, okay, God's telling me something here. He's helping me to understand. But until you have an obvious no, The message of Scripture is you keep asking, you keep praying, you keep going to God. Men men ought to always pray and not faint. But here God gives Paul a direct message that he was going to have to continue living with this thorn in the flesh. And he explained to Paul, which I know had to help Paul, to keep me from becoming conceited or arrogant, Paul says. God said no. 
See, if Moses struggled with anger and David struggled with lust, maybe for Paul, his struggle was going to be pride. But think, think of what we know about Paul. Paul had all the advantages. He was from the right family. He had the right education. I mean, he was from the right group. Everything was so well positioned. And now he had these special revelations from God. It was almost like he was too good to be true. The kind of things that kind of makes a person become full of themselves. Arrogant. Conceited. So God allowed this thorn in the flesh to keep him humble. Some suggest it was eyesight. A lot of reasons for that. Just a guess, but they suggest that. But think about that. How humiliating it would be for a grown man so otherwise accomplished to have to hold the hand of another just to make it onto the boat or up to the platform to start speaking. How embarrassing if it was something like a, an epileptic seizure. You're fine one moment, everybody's looking at you, and the next you fall out on the floor. And you have no control of your body. How humiliating would that be? Embarrassing. We don't know what it was, but whatever it was, it was enough that Paul said, Lord, take it away. But God said no. Paul received that no with such a gracious spirit. Look at verses 9 and 10. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here's the application. Sometimes when God will say no to the desires of your heart because he knows what's best for you. Better than you know yourself. He knows you better than you know yourself. He knows that maybe if your prayer is answered, you'll become conceited. Maybe if he gives you what you're wanted, you'll become the victim to temptation. Maybe if you get it, maybe you'll become too indulgent and you'll lose your focus. And if, you don't, if God doesn't give you the desires of your heart, can you by faith accept that his ways are better than your ways? Look at the wisdom of 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. You have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, get that, the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. I read about a guy from Houston, Texas, who he and his wife wanted to be missionaries. So they went back to college, and they got a degree. And then when it's time to raise the funds to go, they were not successful. They didn't have enough money. And so I've got the degree, said, so I'll just start preaching. And he started preaching, and, and, and that was an abysmal failure. And he was so discouraged, but he had to make money. So he went back to his first occupation and got a job as an accountant with an oil company. But he had a good spirit, and he did a good job. And about 10 years later, the company came to him and said, would you be willing to take an overseas assignment? He said, absolutely. And now he looks back on his life. He spent two years in the Netherlands, 10 in Russia, another 10 in Angola. And at each place, he would become a part of the local church there. 
teaching, encouraging, because he was making good money. He could contribute so much to support the church. He would teach. He would preach. And he realized, looking back on all those years, that he had become a missionary on the corporation's tab. He said, but for 10 years, I had to deal with God's no. Not understanding why. Remember when Mary and Nazareth, Mary and Martha said to Jesus, come quickly because our brother Lazarus is sick and he's going to die? They knew Jesus had the power to heal him. But Jesus said no. And when Jesus finally came four days later, you remember the story? Lazarus was already dead. And both Mary and Martha independently say the same thing to Jesus. If you had been here, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. But Jesus was not four days late, was he? He was right on time because while Jesus said no to them, there was a bigger yes that God had in mind that had even more implications, not just for Lazarus and for Mary and for Martha, but for the whole ministry, for the whole coming of Jesus. Remember, that, that miracle was the trajectory, the hinge in his ministry when Lazarus came back from the grave. But first, there was a no. Sometimes God may ask you to wait four days or four years or 40 years. And you grasp why. Then mark down Romans 8, 18. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed in us. God is looking at the eternal. God is looking at the big picture. Not just what we're focused on today and the here and now. Let me close telling you about a young man, a really sharp young man named Nabil. Nabil immigrated from Pakistan with his very devout Muslim family. He was so brilliant. He just did well in college, went to med school. He was acing everything. But he was constantly butting heads with his roommate who was a Christian. And they would talk and debate and talk and debate. And finally, Nabil had enough integrity to say, well, I'm going to read the scriptures that you're telling me here and prove how wrong you are. And you can imagine he read the scriptures and he became convinced that Jesus is the Christ. And he accepted that truth and became a Christian. But he had a heart for Muslim people because that's, that's him. That's who he was. That, was. that was his family. So he and his roommate went to a Muslim convention in Dearborn, Michigan, wearing t-shirts that said, Ask Me About Jesus. Now, if you know anything about Dearborn, Michigan, that, that city has the highest uh, population of Muslims per capita in the whole U.S. So that, that's kind of what we're dealing with here. Well, they got the attention of a lot of people, but not necessarily in a positive way. They were arrested for disturbing the peace, taken to the local jail. In the jail, they separated the two. Nabil was on one end of the jail, and, and his Christian roommate was on the other end of the jail, and all these you know, others that were arrested were in between them. Here's what Nabil said. I was so down. I had prayed that God would open the doors in this convention and I'd be able to convince some of my fellow Muslims about Christ. 
and I get thrown in jail. But then he said, I remembered Paul and Silas in jail in Philippi. And instead of getting angry with God, how they sang praises and they rejoiced. There was an earthquake and they converted the jailer. So I decided I'd make the most of where I am. So he called out to his roommate and said, why are you in jail? And his roommate said, I don't know. Why are you in jail? He said, I'm in jail for preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his roommate called on. Oh, what's the gospel of Jesus Christ? And for the next 20 minutes, everyone in that jail heard the good news of Jesus. And you know what happened? There was an earthquake in Michigan. And the doors opened. And the jailer came up and said, I know. I just made that up. Because there's no dramatic way of ending that story. But that's the point. There are times where we're in jail. There's times where God says no to what we were dreaming, even for Him. And we have to think, how am I going to respond to this? How am I going to react to this? Do I have enough faith in God to accept that, realizing God's got better plans? God sees things I do not see, and in faith accept His no. How do you react when you don't know the why? When you can't put the pieces together? Are you so intellectually proud that you've got to know all the answers, every detail to everything? Or can you by faith say, Lord, I believe you have all the answers, whether you reveal them to me or not. I'll put this on the screen. When you can't see God's hand, are you willing to trust his heart? That's the issue here. If God said no to Moses, if God said no to David, if God said no to Paul, he can say no to me. In fact, when you think about it, God said no to Jesus in the garden just before the cross. For three hours, the Gospels tell us he prayed so fervently, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, Luke twenty two forty two. This was not a flippant, God, get me out of this mess kind of prayer. He knew it was coming, but even at that moment, it was such an intense prayer on his face, sweat drops like blood, but there was no other way. And God said no. God said no. And Jesus came out of that garden of Gethsemane, not with a yes, but with a renewed spirit of submission to doing God's will. Whatever that meant, wherever it led, and he knew exactly what that meant for him. He accepted, not my will, but yours be done. Look at Hebrews 12, verses 2 through 3. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men, so that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So you will not grow weary, and lose heart. There is one prayer that God will always say yes to. You know what it is? 
It's the prayer of salvation. Because He wants everyone to be saved. If you're willing to admit that Jesus is the Son of God and confess that before others, let Him make you a new creation in baptism so your sins can be washed away. You receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He makes you a new creation. Your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. And it's sealed with His Spirit. He wants to say yes to you. Our prayer for you is for you to say yes to Jesus. So if you need salvation, I want you to come while we sing this song. Or if you need faith to accept a no that God is telling you. Whatever you need, would you come as we stand and sing to encourage? The Lord.